0: Today, I am really privileged to be speaking with John Hendry and we are going to be talking about resilience. So welcome and thank you very much, John, for taking part in this interview.
1: The pleasure is mine, Sue. Uh,
0: It's always mine when I'm talking with you, John.
1: (laughs) You're very kind, you are very kind. (laughs) Um,
0: So um, I've known John for a number of years now, had the good fortune to um, be in contact with him while he was in his last job. <laughs> now he's a freelancer. Um, he worked for many, many years and he'll be able to tell us exactly how many as the Director of Student Welfare at Geelong Grammar School. And um, and John knows a lot about resilience and a lot about flow and I think we're all gonna learn a lot from um, engaging in this conversation. Um, so John, can you just give us a little, um, like a, a brief snapshot of your background and and what it is that you did do and are doing now?
1: Certainly, uh, Sue. Um, I was a country boy from Northern Victoria, went to a very small state school, stammered very badly as a young child, in fact, through until the age of about 30, um, although it was improving in my 20s. um, I uh, eventually uh, went on to Melbourne University and studied education, did a diploma of education, uh, had the ignominy of in one year, the only year in diploma of education, they had an elocution test um, to see whether or not you could teach a little bit like the silly approach that is going on at the moment about whether people can read correctly or do maths before they go out to teaching. But anyway, we all had to read an unseen uh, page of prose uh, in a public forum Um, and of course I was unable to do that really because of stammering and that would have been the end of teaching all this is relevant to Um, flow and um, so my the people sitting around we were becoming very 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 nervous and I was too which means it's impossible to get into flow as I went and approached the um the lectern where the prose was waiting for me um i decided that i would approach it in a way that gave me some authority over it so i sang it in plain song Mm. um this there is always white noise in an audience and the white noise disappeared Mm. very quickly and people started to applaud and laugh because they thought i was taking the mickey out of the Mm. exercise i was not i was just surviving and once i'd started i was in flow i was completely locked to the task there was no distraction at the conclusion of it i turned to the three examiners two women and a gentleman and they said mr Hendry, room 204 at one o'clock so i went in at 204 knocked on the door very nervous again um And if anyone is listening and they have a speech impediment, then they'll understand what nervousness does to you. Mm. Um, It doesn't allow you to get into any condition that might approach flow. Um, I opened the door, went in, and they thought I was being a smart aleck. Mm. And the two letters primarily that were my hangman's noose were S and N. And so I tried to say sorry. Mm -hmm. But... And then I had to say... Meaning no. And then I said, I want to apologize. And I got that out correctly. Um, And everyone then was... Well, confused. Uh, And then I thought the gentleman asked an appropriate question, how can you teach, it was a good question. I said, please give me a go, go." and they didn't send me to one of the smallest high schools in the state, in the Mallee, and the first thing I wrote on the board um, was my name, in those days it had to be Mr. Henry, and under that I wrote, I stammer, please be kind,
0: Mm.
1: and I have. I was almost 50 years in a classroom, not one student was unkind. And that removed any uh, nervousness I had in approaching a class or delivering things. And it, even though I stammered, and I may do so in this uh, session, um, it never deterred me from being able to focus totally on task uh, and I was not anxious, so I was able to deal with it and over time, through doing lots and lots and lots of meditation, so I've probably done well in excess of twenty thousand hours of meditation in my life so far uh, and through singing, i've been able to do what i'm doing now, speaking almost normally to you
0: yeah speaking with amazing clarity and and that's quite a quite a story that I i haven't uh, i haven't heard before i uh, i think that's a, a really fantastic example of of resilience um and it also it was really
1: sorry Sue, go on
0: and also some ingenious thinking like how did you come up with the idea of singing it
1: um i had been uh, so from the age of 6 i i was tested in a very small country school of 35 students only seven of us were white, the Western Indigenous. We rode our push bikes to school, took our shoes and socks off and left them on the handlebars because no one else had shoes and socks. Um, and so I had six years of wonderful, wonderful education at that level. Uh, but it, when I was in grade six, no, when I was six years old, sorry, um, so I was in uh, grade one, uh, a educational psychologist from the Victorian Education Department came around to the school to test every student to see whether they had any capacity to learn or whatever. The IQ stuff was really big, very big in the 50s and 60s. You either could learn or you could not. Um, and anyway, I was tested and the principal of the school, I loved dearly, Bren Railton was a man in probably his late 40s or 50s, early 50s then. Um, and the so there are a whole range of things we had to go through. And of course, there was an a lot of conversation in the uh, interview with the psychologist, which I couldn't manage very well. Uh, I tried, but I was very nervous. Um, and I was asked to recite the months of the year, and I left two out. And the two that I left out were September and November because S and N mm. were my trap. Um, and when the psychologist spoke to Bren and I can remember him telling my father this. When she came to me, Jack, he said, uh, he said she said that John was okay, but he doesn't know the months of the year. And Brent said he would have left out September and November. And she said that's right. Uh, and he laughed. And I thought about that. And one of my great interests in life is the uh, the quality of relationships that people have that enable people to feel comfortable and not disturbed when they are uh, in a conversation, which is a task and something that we're doing now, but is a task that people really focus on with any real attention. And I believe that we should be all in flow when we are having conversations and we are careless most of the time and we are not. Um, But it really drove home to me how important it is for teachers to know their students it's incredibly important for managers to know their staff it's important for friends to know one another for partners to know one another at a level that often we just don't get to that we need to get to more often mm. so it's really important but i went on uh after teaching in the state department for a number of years i taught at a, a small country high school and then melbourne high school and then moriola chelsea high school where i was seconded to uh, Monash University to look after the first intake of mature age students into into teaching, and then I was seduced to go to Geelong Grammar School, where I spent thirty six years living on campus. The last fifteen of them as Director of Student Welfare. It was in those days I like welfare rather than well being. Um, and uh, up until then, I did a whole range of things. Changed the culture of the school was by my set task uh, so that we could remove fear as a motivation and replace it with kindness. And it took a number of years to do that, but in the end it was done and that released most students to then approach flow a, a flow circumstance in their learning in and everything they did.
0: And you've used that language there, flow. And yes. um, so maybe we're just, um Diverge a little bit just to ask you, how did you come across flow? What, what was it that um, led you to be able to embark on this journey with, with teaching others about flow?
1: Oh, it goes back to the original, uh, my original understanding of how anxiety can inhibit you addressing a task. So my whole, being was tied with trying to find the best circumstance, personal circumstance, for me to address a task. And the original and most paramount or important task was for me to learn to speak, uh, to actually respond uh, without. So I was looking for flow, if you like, not knowing the language of flow or anything. And that worked, Sue, uh, all the way through my childhood and adolescence, and I was precociously able in the area of sport uh, at a young age uh, and played at the highest level cricket uh, in the state at the age of 15. And I did that still stammering and so forth, which was rather amusing for all those that that became my close friends and uh, colleagues or opponents. However, uh, I had to dismiss all the sorts of distractions and at the age of about 15 or 16 i started to realize how powerful it was to get if you like uh, things in line or the preconditions to it uh, make certain that you were a hundred percent on task mm-hmm. and then and then i discovered the thinking behind flow with ching sent me writing and i also had read by then some of the uh, ideas that the chinese had about being locked to flow and allowing and trusting your subconscious mind and your skills to take over without being interfered by the worrying uh, conscious mind uh, and that really and then once i found Cheng sent me higher writing and then got into reading it very carefully and and analyzing and thinking about it and then even came to your book with with um uh, Cheng sent me high on flow with elite athletes. It just made sense, and I was actually living it in the moments that I was teaching in a classroom. I was trying to live it all moments that I was in conversation. So I was, I was a flow listener. So I mm. tried to make certain I was an active listener all the time. And you know, you depending on, and this is where resilience comes in. Depending on your tiredness, your physiology. The neurology, the systems of the body, and so forth. That were at the time, whether or not I was able to actually really attend the way I wanted to, um, but then I had the fortune of actually meeting Cheng me uh when we began at Geelong Grammar School to look more closely at some of the inhibiting factors that were disturbing learning and and student wellbeing, health, mental health, and so forth, uh, and I had then I've spent oh, quite a number of hours uh, locked in conversation about flow uh, with many, many people. That the primary one was Cenk sent behind. So, But mm-hmm. with you, over many years, we've looked at flow across the whole range of living circumstances. And, and so I've been very lucky, I think.
0: And Geelong Grammar uh, was also very fortunate to to have you. And uh, as a recognition of of your contribution to that school over was it thirty six years? Did you say? Yes,
1: it was. It was.
0: You were awarded an Order of the Medal of Australia for your services to education and also to cricket. What year was uh, that? Uh,
1: two thousand and fourteen. Yeah. Yes, so. two thousand fourteen. It was a great honour, and and I'm thrilled that they. They, they didn't tack on, they actually uh, made cricket uh, also because I, I spent uh, 40 years coaching senior and junior mm-hmm. uh, uh, cricket and attempting as best I could to ensure that when the boys or girls who, or the young men that I was coaching at elite level, right down to just school kids underage, uh, that when they were presented with a testing task in the game that in fact they were performing at their best. They were able to lock themselves into a task. And this was incredibly interesting to them. And many tried, some achieved it, and some actually when they did achieve it, actually defined it to me as I was in flow today can do. And which is really quite something. And I did have the pleasure of having a long conversation with a young man I coached when I was coaching Melbourne University who went on to Captain England uh, and to be selected in the uh, best or what was judged as the best cricket side selected from all test playing countries in the world, Ian Botham. Mm-hmm. And uh, I spent a lot of time when Ian had had uh, two years with me at, at um, Melbourne University, he came across from England during the winter to to play in Australia and and I coached him for those. And uh, we spent a lot of time, I didn't actually talk to him about flow, I talked to him about performing at his best Mm
0: -hmm.
1: in in, uh, examination circumstances, which is when he is uh, playing the game. Mm -hmm. So moment to moment, he was able to lock himself into a, if you like, an emotional state that allowed him to operate his best. At the age of 19 and 20, he was unable to do that often, but by the time he got through the captain in England, he was more able to get himself there and hold himself there longer. Um, and I was not surprised when he alone um, beat Australia uh, in a, in a test match. And he, I've had conversations with him since he has no recollection of it. To say the small minutia that goes on in in a performance when you are in flow, um, your subconscious is dealing with so many distractions and putting them in the right order and uh, attending to them and intuitively addressing them at such a rate that uh, might, if you were trying to consciously do it, you would be exhausted in a moment. Uh, it's making so many decisions for you but keeping them in order
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: I was not surprised I can remember driving and saying to Jen my wife England will win this test Ian is in charge Mm -hmm. and he was and I've discussed it with him he said look I thought of you at the end of the innings and I people were saying that what about this and what about that he said I couldn't recall those because they were locked away. So I had to dig back through to the hippocampus. And by then, uh, they'd gone. Now he could probably record them now, recall some of them now, but almost immediately after he couldn't. And I, I noticed that with the young uh, uh, Japanese girl, Osaka, who who mm, won the, uh, mm. the, that she was attempting to make sense of it, but could not draw consciously draw forward the things that actually wanted for her, her capacity to trust all the uh, work that she'd done previously, and especially the forehand drive, it was amazing.
0: Yeah, so um, just to give a little bit of time context to to our interview, it's actually the Australia Day public holiday today and just had the end of the Australian Open tennis. And, uh, and so it, it's, um, yeah, I, I just realized that now that you were awarded in 2014 an order of Australia medal. And today we are celebrating uh, Australia day. So congratulations. Again Thank you very question.
1: much. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> You're very and, kind.
0: <laughs> and can you tell us, John, I'm not sure if you've had this question asked before, but I imagine you have. Why do you think you've been successful at what you have done and what you continue to do?
1: um so i i think it goes back to um looking for meaning in life and approaching it i i i've always felt that um contribution is the main thing that makes life worthwhile for you so contribution to others um and so i've i've deliberately worked to 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 do that, but in order to do that, I've had to be really able, uh, uh, really needed to learn how to focus acutely on task. Mm-hmm. If you don't have focus on acutely on task, then you are not performing at your best. And so consequently, you will not raise the bar in your own expectation of your own performance. And so I really think it's necessary to uh, ask questions of yourself, often without being overcritical and making you um, feel you know, compromised or disappointed, that uh, was at your best? And if it was not, then to carefully analyze what was uh, causing the distraction. And I think I was very lucky, Sue, because of the speech impediment, that I had begun that you know, probably you know, even before I started school. Mm. Um, and so it just kept me on task and it is the big picture stuff that is important Uh, so I was always attempting to in all sorts of things so just in reading um, I wasn't a a good and automatic reader so I set that task that was a a purpose I wanted to be able to read well Uh, and so much so that I you know Enrolled in and completed a fast, well, fast reading course, mm. um, and so on. So, uh, probably I was purpose driven in many ways, mm. Sue. It sounds but like it. it. All the, all the time, it was with a a sense of generosity towards what can I give.
0: Mm. Yeah, I could understand the the need for you. To have focused as a young person, and how you became very skilled at that. Where did that sense of generosity and wanting to be contributing to others? Do you do you know where that came from?
1: Oh, uh, the most important. Well, we do. Um, we we live our entire lives in relationships. Um, we are born into a. We're, well, we're conceived in a relationship. We're born into a relationship and uh, will die from a relationship uh, we primarily have uh, our primary relationship of course is with ourselves this gets into the real essence of of a, a sense of self-regard self-worth this is resilience but uh, my approach was always to not to ap- appreciate the people and to appreciate circumstance uh, rather than depreciate it uh i and it's really important if you want to get into flow uh then you need to appreciate every uh required circumstance that's associated with it Mm. um and so i i really think that probably i came to it understanding that i would make mistakes uh and if i did make the mistakes i had to see that as a a primary point or a primary learning moment or the beginning of a learning moment rather than the end of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And unfortunately, people who struggle to uh, get into flow, people who struggle to perform at their best, uh, see failure as uh, a downer, Uh, Mm -hmm. something that uh, is, is to be avoided. Uh, So, you know, and this is some of the work that's been done by Carol Dweck with, you know, fixed mindsets and growth mindsets and so on. Uh, And I quite like her work, but uh, as I've said to you before, um, uh, I've worked on with a a colleague, Andrew Fuller, and we've worked and, and, and put forward the concept of a resilient mindset where people manage. To understand the concept of mistake or mistake, uh, misjudgment or a misjudgment or failure in a way that is, if you like, um, positive rather than questionably or a negative. Okay. Um, and I think it's particularly important because as you're approach, uh, approaching a fail, uh, if you or a real test. And if failure is looming as a concern, then that is just a distraction from your best performance.
0: Yeah, so can you talk more about this resilient mindset and maybe what attracted you to resilience? And, and I know that um, you're spending a lot of your work time in that field now, if you might yes. want to just um, share with, with us what it is you're doing in that space.
1: Yeah. Um certainly. Um, I'm, I'm now working with schools and businesses, uh, looking at the fundamental uh, um, element of what defines motivation for staff or students or staff in a working situation. And in, with sporting clubs, um, what, what actually defines how they get the best out of their players. And unfortunately, most organizations, if not 100%, then pretty close to 100% still live in the understanding that fear is the primary motivator. Fear will keep you on track. Hmm. Now, we know scientifically that that's not so. And all the work being done by Barbara Friedrichson and many others in the area of looking at, at positive and negative emotions, if there are such things, but emotional Uh, backgrounds to performance and so on uh, clearly indicate that uh, fear is an inhibitor if it is becomes a dominant part of motivation and our systems are very very militaristic so fear is a dominant way we still believe that if you frighten people you'll keep them on task and in organizations and schools fear is a dominant uh, management uh, style or technique to keep people on task and we've created appraisal or assessment systems of performance KLA's and all these sorts of things so people are forever anxious about how they perform so I'm going into schools and saying this is unhelpful you are Denying the possibility of people performing at their best, and so I'm replacing it, placing a culture of fear, if you like, with a culture of kindness. Mm. And this is a bit frightening for organizations because they think uh, that people will take advantage and and of course, we want them to take advantage, but advantage in a good way. Um, and schools recognize very quickly that this is uh, uh, sensible, um, and so I approach uh, Sue, and this is about resilience. I, repro- uh, I approach it from the point of view of a relationship, and um, if you are resilient, then you will have you will recognise the, the elements of a quality relationship are fundamental to it, and the elements there are five of them. Trust is is the first one, and Primarily important you must trust your judgment trust your the work you've done and so forth And if you do trust that then you have a better chance of performing at a higher level if you have some doubt about your capacity Then there is that doubt will rule so number one is trust and this is in any type of relationship any type so the relationship I have with you and and With the uh, the flow Center and so on trust is critically important uh, me of you and you of me. Mm-hmm. The second the second one is forgiveness. Forgiveness is a really interesting concept and difficult for most people to understand and they see it, possibly they see it as a religious uh, thing and it is not at all. It is not, it is a psychological and dominant physiological uh, aspect of uh, our, our existence. And in order to explain forgiveness, I take the word forgive and take the four off the front and put it on the back. It's give four the relationship, give four yourself, give four the other person if they make a mistake. So forgiveness is fundamentally important in every aspect of our lives. It is in fact the primary enabler for us getting into flow. If we can forgive ourselves for stuffing up, we've got a better chance of them Mm addressing the concepts that are necessary in order for us to refocus. The third one is integrity and simply integrity is just doing the right thing moment to moment. Uh, And and that's simple. It's really interesting explaining integrity to eight-year-olds, five-year-olds, let alone 20-year-olds. What is integrity in the right moment? In the moment, you do the right thing. And if Mm you mean standing alone, you need to. And often this is difficult in a resilient sense. And certainly you must do the right thing if, um, in a moral sense. Uh, although, you know, people will argue about those sorts of things. The fourth one is hope, and mm-hmm. hope is an is an active thing, whereas optimism is passive. Uh, and this has been looked at by many philosophers over many many years. But hope is fundamentally, if you are hopeful or full of hope you're more likely to perform better than if you are less of hope or hopeless. And so, and again, all this is, you, you, you know, it's, it's, you meditate upon it. it, it has to be carefully managed, but hope theory is well worth anyone who is looking at flow mm. to actually look at hope theory and to see how critical it is. By the way, if people lose hope, then flow, is just never going to appear. If people lose hope, and this is a desperate part of life, and I've dealt with people who have lost hope, it's incredibly difficult to rebuild hope once it's lost and gets past a certain level of self-regard. And the last one is compassion. Uh, and I'll quickly just explain that Compassion is empathy, and all of us are empathic. We're on a on a spectrum of empathy from zero, where narcissists sit, through to, uh, uh, being totally empathic so we wear our heart on our sleeve and this is Simon Bowen cohens work from Cambridge University particularly interesting work but uh, compassion is empathy action through care so compassion isn't is dynamic it is an action thing so all those things are critically important in the relationship so if we go then to what is resilience resilience has really four components to it and each of them are critically important the first one is a physiological component and by the way flow has these these four components to it as well Uh, so the first one is physiological so if and we can break probably break that down into three particular items the first one is diet and this is particularly interesting if we look across cultures where we have different diets so in the Western world, we're becoming less and less resilient because our diet is is not very good and we, because we have obesity and sugar problems and so forth. So behaviorally, we are not able to actually focus as we should. So diet is critically important. If you look at the East and the West, the West is not as resilient as the East and that's probably a, a gross generalization, but it's true, I've spent a lot of time in those last few years working in China, Uh, and obesity is foreign to China and uh, their diet is really not sugar-bound and Mm. so these are really interesting so diets critical the second one is exercise and you know that and everyone knows exercise if we are um, well exercised if our body's in good condition then the possibility of Of not being distracted by something hurting us or we're getting tired quickly or whatever then the possibility of being in flow uh, and remaining on task is promoted and the the last one is sleep
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and sleep is unbelievably important because it is the only moment that in fact your body has a chance to recuperate besides Mm -hmm. some of those exercises like yoga and meditation so forth where It slows all systems down, enabling it to recuperate and rejuvenate. Um, But sleep in particular, and especially deep sleep, REM sleep, is really, really important. Those three are the physiological components of uh, uh, resilience. The Mm -hmm. second component of resilience, Sue, is what I call self-regard or the psychological components of it. So this is your sense of self-worth. Um, and this is tied to all manner of um, uh, systems. Uh, as you're growing up, your, the, your psychology is slowly but surely maturing. Um, and this goes back to attachment theory. This is John Bowlby's work, Mary Ainsworth's work, and Mary Main and, and so on, where all interrelationships are critically important in establishing your sense of self-worth. Uh, It's particularly interesting to watch young children grow up uh, preschool and then during primary school ages and then into the secondary school and um, depending on what we mean by maturity going on then into young adulthood. But in the, and so your psychology is really the second major uh, area for resilience, the third And by the way, that fits very comfortably into how you precondition things for flow, your sense of self-worth, I can achieve, and so on. Mm -hmm. So a positive attitude there is critically important. The third one uh, really is what I call social regard. And this is your capacity to form relationships with others, but also the capacity for others to form relationships with you. And you may think that you are the best person in the world but if no one else does your your self regard will disappear quickly and this is particularly obvious to young people as they're growing up and especially teenagers where it's far more important to how your peers regard you than how you regard yourself Mm. and uh, if there's a dislocation if peers don't think you're very good then this is This is really off-putting in a uh, self-care sense, in a uh, mental health sense. So your social regard is critically important. How others regard you uh, is important. And it is important in flow. If others think you can, then you've got more of a chance of thinking you can. If they Mm -hmm. think you can't within a moment just a look in the eye or a facial expression yes. will challenge you and put you off. And you can see this in major events. You can see it. Even elite performers who are in flow can be disturbed by um, you know a doubt that is delivered to them uh, uh, inappropriately by a thought or it could be just by a competitor. Uh, so how you lock your way but a cognizant of it but put it in the right position you you give it the right amount of attention but it doesn't overrun everything Mm -hmm. so this is a really important so that's the third one and the last one is what i'm working with in schools that's the total environment so for for example a student to be in flow in a lesson where they let's say they're just doing reading for a student to be in flow in that lesson those first three things have to be in order but what is primarily important dominantly important is the environment of the classroom so if the environment of the classroom is not conducive to Mm -hmm. you getting into flow you've got to overcome that somehow and that is incredibly difficult yes and probably the best way of explaining it is that the envir- uh, explaining how critical the environment is to resilience and to flow? Is to uh, I, I use uh, an example of a fish tank. If the environment is a, a complementary environment, it's an environment that's encouraging you to reach to your best. Then the water's clear, the fish will thrive, everything is good. Whatever's in there, the food will be not contaminated anyway. If the water is dirty, if it's polluted, if it's toxic in any way, uh, then the the fish are inhibited. They they won't, they will never operate at their best. Um, it's just not possible. Uh, and in fact, they all founder and, and and so what i'm attempting to do in schools and what i'm attempting to do with our whole concept of resilient mindset is to actually make certain that those four right. elements not only are they understood but they are put in in the context and clearly very quickly uh, attended to and those four
0: components um was that something that you developed, and was that in association with with a colleague? Was that what you were seeing?
1: Um, I I've actually I, I put that together a long time ago, Sue. So, okay. Um, uh, mainly because it was from personal observation and personal experience. I actually experienced situations where I felt I was pretty good. Uh, my uh, I. I you know everything i had uh, i'd eaten well slept well uh, mm-hmm. i was well exercised i felt pretty good others felt pretty good about me but we went to a circumstance where it it just colored things in a way that it wasn't really possible for you to operate at your best um, and so i became aware of it quite a long time ago and so i developed a thing called a relational quotient. You know, we have an educational quotient and a, mm. a, 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 an EQ, an a emotional quotient. Well, I believe we all have a, a relational quotient. And I believe that that is critically important. So, how? Because the primary relationship we have with ourselves is with ourselves. Uh, so, in order for us to relate well to a task, we have to have a sense of belief that we can contribute to the task, add to it, benefit from it, and all the other sorts of things. Uh, The same with how we relate to other people. If, on the other hand, we're a bit suspicious about this, then we'll be guarded. And the guarded means that you become a little bit anxious, you become over-attentive to things rather than have that sense of, well, not relaxation, but that sense of really attentiveness Uh, that's needed for you to perform at your best. And this could be at a dinner party, just in a conversation like we're having now. Uh, Any sort of distraction. If someone burst in the door now here, I would be distracted. Um, So then I would have to somehow manage that and regather to get back into a flow circumstance or as best I could. And so I created a a thing called a resilient quotient. Sorry, a relationship quotient quotient Um, and you will know people who form relationships well and are confident that you will know people who are suspicious uh, not confident about how they form relationships Uh, and this relates to their capacity to actually get into flow if they're suspicious because they become suspicious of themselves in reference to a task so these are really complicated and interesting things and and it is a neurological and physiological state flow Um, and so all the body systems need to be in balance and there's a proprioception or proprioceptive type circumstance that needs to come into existence for you to be in the flow channel it doesn't have to be a difficult task but they all need to be uh, singing from the, <laughs> the the same page, yeah. Yeah. all need to be there in in uniform. Uh, and, you know the if, that wonderful book that was written um, uh, by Edward I oh, can't think of his surname at the moment. Um, uh, the the book is trying not to try, which mm. looks at the the Chinese in depth concept of. Uh, wu-wei which is the concept of flow is it is absolutely terrific and you will have had it said to it and people who are listening to this blog will have said look just settle down you're trying too hard and all these things in in then uh our sense of self oh i've done it again and once we get to that emotional state that takes us away from putting in order those things that allow us to really attend to tasks and to operate with our best.
0: And so you've spoken in talking about resilience and the model of resilience, about some barriers to resilience playing out in our lives. And you've mentioned fear and you've also mentioned about relationship and and some other things. What do you think is critical in terms of um addressing that could be potential barriers to resilience being developed in an individual?
1: um, I think for an individual, but also individuals live in relationships, Mm -hmm. individuals individuals live in circumstances. So we need to not only address the individual, but we need to address the environment, the circumstance. Um, And it is, a matter of understanding failure and what failure is. And we live in a system where failure is not appreciated, not seen in an appreciative sense. It's seen in a depreciative sense. Our mm-hmm. culture says if you're a failure, you, you know the same, you're just a failure, Yeah. right? Now, if people take that on board, then you, ha- how do you overcome it? How do you overcome it? And this is not, you know, falling off a bike, just getting back on, or whatever it might be. This, you know, you can do it stuff. Uh, that's primarily important, but it it doesn't even go anywhere near uh, the the soul of what we're talking about. It, it is how you define for yourself failure. Mm. And you will always make a mistake. you know I, when I'm talking about relationships, I say I've been married for over 40 years and that my wife Jenny is the luckiest person in the world because I've never made a mistake in my relationship and everyone laughs. well of course they should laugh. <laughs> we make we make mistakes moment to moment and I've made many today a misjudgment, I miss judgment I miss time something I yeah you know, I, I overcook something in the microwave. what you know we'll, we just make hundreds and hundreds of mistakes, we fail at a task we set ourselves up to achieve. How we manage that is particularly important, but this is where the relational thing is really important. How Jen manages the stuff ups that I make is critical to me being able then to take on a task to even approach something and think I can, it's worthwhile me performing at my best. here. So it's not only how I manage failure, but it's how, the circumstance, those I'm relating with, the environment in which I'm operating, the school or the business or the event or whatever it might be, how it looks at failure. Mm -hmm. And you just take, you know, any event, like how did the, and we have so many scribes now, so many uh, people who um, like to state clearly that, you know, uh, Your good, bad, or otherwise. Uh, and our, our media is ultra critical of yes. performance or lack of performance. And this is why we have mental health issues of a major kind for elite athletes. Um, the public is unforgiving. They're, they have an expectation that failure is not part of the scene.
0: Yeah. And
1: if it is part of the scene, then they're pathetic. Um, and this is in our DNA, and we need to change that DNA if we want to get more people to be able to operate at their best. Mm. We need to overcome this fear of failure.
0: Yeah, it reminds me, listening to you there, about the famous Michael Jordan quote about um, he attributes his success to having failed over and over again, and uh, he certainly an example of of both a resilient athlete and an athlete who was able to experience flow and to do so in the midst of chaos on the basketball court. Um, Yes. So I think that that just uh, was something I was just going to mention. He's not the only resilient athlete. Um, But that's just a a nice quote.
1: It it is. And what it means is that when you are in flow, This is what people don't understand, I don't think. When you are in flow, you are making more decisions than you could ever imagine you would be making in that circumstance. Mm. Uh, And Roy Baumeister's work on decision fatigue is really interesting in that if you are consciously making decisions and you're consciously making decisions, you cook yourself. To make a decision burns a lot of energy. However, when you are in flow, you're making so many decisions, but they're made not consciously. They are made through a trust circumstance. That, so they're made subconsciously. And when they are made subconsciously, you don't burn as much energy. Now, the easiest way to explain that to people is that that is why we create habits. Our habits reduce the, because already we a habit is that we've decided to do it this way. And you'll know people by their habits. And when, uh, like, you and I have habits on how we use a knife and fork. We don't have to make decisions all the time. But when we were learning to, we did. And it was tiring. Now, this is a really interesting thing about resilience and about flow. Uh, Making decisions makes us tired. So we're more likely to get into flow when we're not tired. Going back to sleep is important. But physiology is important. So by the end of the with little kids in schools, it's less likely that they'll be able to get into flow later in the day than earlier in the day because they're more tired and it will take more energy for them to stay on task. So these are really, this is why I was really interested in looking at a resilient mindset as opposed to a fixed and growth mindset. That resilient mindset is one where the whole picture is uh, brought together and the concept of failure is uh, attended in a way that's far more positive.
0: Mm. And then how does that then lead us to make flow more likely? How does resilience help us to experience flow?
1: Oh, uh, A resilient person is a person who puts failure in context, Mm. doesn't get it out of proportion. They see it, they actually see it as a positive uh, for better performance because it it actually, if you fail something, then the the process you were using wasn't effective. Malcolm uh, McCallum, who was the the manager of the Sex Pistols, uh, made a great statement and his statement was, that success will only be achieved after you had a monumental failure and he's probably right um and you know and there are some you will understand there are some people who who naturally have picked up a skill very quickly and others have really had to work at it um there there are some people who seem to breeze through education and they're you know they're getting distinctions here there everywhere which is a terrible thing for schools to be giving but anyway uh, they 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 do it simply and by the end of their secondary schooling you know they're ducks to school or they're right up there at the top and they're going off into university uh and they've had no they haven't had failure to actually experience the concept of developing a resilient mindset Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, one aspect of their life—it may not be their study life, but it could well be—but one aspect of their life will go awry, and they will run for cover. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting: the um, the mental health and suicide rate of valedictorians is quite different to those that have skinned their knees on the way up and stood up straight and tried again and tried again and developed if you like, a thick skin or however we describe it, mm-hmm. um, uh, that, that they they cope uh, when the tests are really put in front of them. They don't think, oh, no, I'll run for cover. Uh, no, 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 I won't do that. Um, and so there have been many really interesting studies done on the mental health of, of uh, people who have breezed through the early aspects of their lives, haven't stammered soon have had to learn how to sing on uh, uh, on one note, which is plain song. Uh, like you can use all sorts of examples, and you could find them yourself and with your sons. And no doubt, uh, Cameron could too, uh, in his own way. And conversation of happened, Cameron, he's described it uh, perhaps not in the same way, but that's what it is. And if you ask Michael Jordan, he would tell you that. And so it, it's really an interesting. Flow is just a, a, a state where people operate at their best and all body systems, including the immune system, everything is really operating uh, in balance as best it can. Um, and, you know, we all, some of us are tall, some of us are short, some of us have speech impediments, some of us have physical uh, impediments and so on, but all of us can get to the state of flow if we can put... All things in line.
0: Mm. It's um, certainly been very uplifting to to have this opportunity to listen to you and and uh, really appreciate what you've been sharing with us about resilience and flow. Um, there's just a quote I was going to share and get your response to a quote from Chick Sent Me High, which ties into resilience and flow almost every situation we encounter in life presents possibilities for growth and that certainly uh, addresses you know concepts of failure and and what is failure how do you think because we could probably all do better at this how do we adopt this sort of perspective when we're facing challenges and in particular when adversity strikes
1: and it will strike We we really, this is a relational thing. We need to feel um, that we won't be judged critically when we get it wrong. We need to feel that uh, others will give us support, others will contribute, and we need to contribute in that moment. We need to have a, an opportunity to accept it as a reality and not run for shame and blame and deny it. Um, we need to really be able to reflect deeply on it um, uh, and we need to then take a positive action in reference to it um, and see it as a learning moment uh, and often people don't often people and this is the old brain taking over because yeah. it's blame and shame and they are the weapons of mass destruction uh, their bedfellows uh, as if if you we we attempt not to blame ourselves for things so we'll blame others Mm. Uh, so sue look this has been a really interesting conversation but you've asked the question that's it's too difficult for me so it's your fault not mine and so we go to this this is the way we justify and try to keep ourselves up we try to keep this self-worth up uh, and after a while this is you know, a little a failure here and a failure there, and if, if we don't manage them properly, this is where trauma comes in. And trauma, uh, you know, uh, Bess der Vanderkolk wrote a wonderful book, *The Body Keeps Score*, mm. where he almost commences by saying you don't have to war, you don't have to go to war to be tra- to suffer trauma, and you don't. you you, you can traumatise yourself. Uh, and I do that in reference to technology. You know that <laughs> <laughs> I do. I run away on a dinosaur. But uh, we 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 traumatise ourselves. But others can traumatise us very quickly. Yes. And this is the this is the whole concept of you know we can be bullied out of something. We can be intimidated out of something. We can be distracted. That's why in sport we use things in in the cricket area that I love inappropriately, immorally, they use sledging to get people off their game. This is why I have that quote that the the greatest practical neuroscientist of the 20th century was Muhammad Ali, in that he never, ever allowed any opponent to ever be in flow in any contest he had with them. He distracted them the whole time by teasing Mm. them. Mm. And that's what bullying is. So that gets us off our game. So it's, it's a really interesting and complex process. And Mihaly is dead right, in fact, that every moment is a testing moment. Uh, and if we manage those moments constructively rather than destructively, then we are on the way hmm. to perhaps performing at our best.
0: Well, I think you've, uh, you've addressed that really well and summed up. Um, what we've been talking about here uh, very eloquently and um just wanna thank you again for taking the time to share your experience and uh, and to do so in, in an environment that you find challenging in a one that requires technology. And uh, I thank think... you Sue. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and and Sue, pat me on the back. I didn't snam up.
0: <laughs> not not at all. I am, I am waiting to hear the song. I'm not sure whether um, <laughs> we might leave that for another time. We might
1: leave that for another time. <laughs> thank you.
0: But great to speak <laughs> with you. Thank you, Sue. All the best.
1: Good. Thank you very much. Good.